I'm Dorianne Wheel. Welcome to Thrive with Dr. D. Welcome to Thrive with Dr. D. I would really like to welcome a very special guest and somebody who I've got to know a little bit over the last year, Tracy Going, just to say it's so wonderful to have you. Now, Tracy Going is a pretty much a household name in South Africa. Years ago, I think it was probably in the early 90s, Tracy's face was everywhere and so was her voice. We used to see you on television, you're often featured in the press, and then suddenly it wasn't. There was a lot of speculation of what's happened to Tracy, and she has a very specific story, specific in some ways because this is her and her story, but about you in other ways because, of course, unexpected, huge, devastating challenges can happen, and they can destroy your life such that you shrink back and say, I will never be the same again, or to reclaim it reclaim it bit by bit and step back sometimes in a better way than when you withdrew in the first place. And Tracy, I'm clearly talking about you because that's what's happened. <laughs> Thank and you, Dorian. Thank you. it's good to Thank see you. you here with a smiley face. Always. Yeah. So you were going along. You were very focused on your career. You were ambitious. You were everywhere. You mm-hmm. were certainly successful and motivated to be even more out there and successful. And then something happened, not something, I think it was over a period that put an absolute stop to that and made you go underground and descend into yourself for quite a long period of time. Well, I think it was, yeah, I think you're talking about, um, unfortunately, it wasn't a very long relationship. It was only about five months, but I think the effects of it were lasting. And even now, I'm still sort of... Even now, I, I revisit it every now and again. I mean, seldom. Obviously, you know, one moves on in life. But um, certainly at the time, it was very impactful and, and changed my life dramatically and probably changed my future anyway. But it was a five-month relationship, and it did certainly destroy my career at the time. It was a huge setback um, career-wise. And it took about two years to pick up the pieces of my career and then sort of continue and, and come back in and start doing what I loved most. You but, say hugely impactful, which it was. Mm. What happened? Well, it was um, an incident of domestic violence. It was a relationship that I was in and it quickly turned violent. It was a pattern of behavior for him, but I didn't know that at the time. And it took me a few months to start suspecting that, you know, things were maybe not okay here. And eventually it sort of escalated. And there were two incidences. The one incident was when he held me hostage for about nine and a half hours through the night, um, you know, sort of assaulting me and and, and hurting me and whatever. And then on the basis of that, I got a restraining order. And then three weeks later, he arrived at my house and he beat me up. So one question that I would often be asked or that you hear is how do you tell? Why do we make those kind of choices? But surely there must be signs when you say it took you a long time to pick it up. Well, it took me, it certainly took me about sort of three months to pick it up. You know, you hear about relationships of people being in relationships for years and years and years. And that was not the incident that I had. You know, mine was essentially a short-lived relationship. I mean, five months, I don't consider, you know, I don't consider that too long. Mm. But it was about three months 
into relationship and I started, the, the signs were already there. You know, I'd heard him swearing at a previous girlfriend. Um, it was the kicking of the dog. It was doors being slammed. So the underlying threats were already manifesting. But you didn't see them as you see them now in retrospect or see them then. Or if you did, there must have been so many such positive aspects of that relationship that you didn't want to really focus on that and maybe oh, yeah. dismissed it mm. as a one-off temper loss or something. I think, I think so. And I think, you know, when you're investing in a relationship, you, it's easy for you to make excuses. It's not always so easy to walk away. You know, you think, well, you know, give them another chance or... Maybe it wasn't really what I thought it was, or we start doubting yourself. You think, good goodness gracious, you know, was it my fault? Um, did I cause that? Um, can I change? And I think that's part of why we always talk about that cycle of abuse. Mm-hmm. And it's so easy to get caught up in it. You don't even realize you're in it mm-hmm. until you see the bruises and then there's no denying it. There's no denying it, yeah. You spoke about the fact that you doubted yourself, which seems to be quite common. There are two very uh, strong aspects of it. One is that it's not all that. There are so many moments and other experiences which are characterized by loving and good relationships and, and caring and so on. Someone said to me, you know, I kept hoping that the prince that I married would come back and take up permanent mm. residence. Mm. And I just knew, you know, there was there was a lot of ask for forgiveness, saying that it wouldn't happen again. And because I hoped for that so much, it prolonged it. That was the one aspect. And the other aspect of it was, what about me? Well, how have I contributed to this? Uh, you said maybe I started thinking maybe I might have caused it. Do you think that you came into that relationship with quite a low self-esteem and not having enough of a sense of entitlement yourself at that time? No, I didn't. I didn't. And I think that's why I started. That's why I didn't stay in it for very long is because I realized that actually this is this is not what I was prepared to put up with. Mm -hmm. Abuse and violence is not Well, that was really in your face. You talk about hostage, being kept Mm. hostage for nine hours, you know, beat up, dragged around, locked in, you know, really bruised. And and then the same thing happened in a different form three weeks later. Do you think that had that explosion manifested in that way, you would have prolonged it? I might have, because I think what you were saying earlier on is so true, is that the perpetrator is... They are manipulative. They know how it works and they find their victims and they break them down systematically. So they know that. And very often you'll hear a perpetrator being described as charming. And I think that's what it is, is they can be so charming and so delightful. And the honeymoon phase is they think, well, yes, what you're seeing, the dark side is maybe just it's just a fraction. So maybe the rest of it sort of outweighs it. Mm. Um, And. Often that's the reason why people just continue to stay. Mm. That and other practical reasons. Mm. Security, image. Children. Children and so on. So having gone, the, you managed to extricate yourself from it. How did it leave you? I think I, I've always used the word victim. I'm not one, and, and I know the, you know the jury's out there on the word victim versus survivor. And I have never seen myself as a survivor of domestic violence. Yes, I came out of it alive. But um, certainly I felt at the time that I was a victim of it. And I was. I was a victim of his brutality. 
How did I feel? I think the overriding emotion for me was, well, he took away my essence. He took away my likeness. He made me fearful. And I think that was the overriding emotion at the time was fear, was that I was so absolutely terrified of him of what he would do to me. I mean, he threatened me and and I believed him. I believed he was quite capable of killing me oh. if he chose to. And he threatened time and time again saying that he would kill me. And I really believed him. And I think that one is right to believe in a situation like that because so often it could women happen. end up dead. Mm-hmm. So with this tremendous overriding fear, not feeling safe, not even for a minute in your own skin in a home. I still need to say it to you. What made you stay after all of those threats? Because you stayed for some time until you couldn't. Well, it, it wasn't. I mean, it was. I got the restraining order immediately, and um, there had been a few incidences, minor, more minor incidences, leading up to to the night he he took me hostage for for nine and a half hours. Um, but that. Um, you know, on the basis of that, I got a, a restraining order. And then it was police and court. So this that. fear that you had was just prolonged even after he had left for a long a f- time. No, no, no. Fear it wasn't went only when he was there. Not at all. To, it was really actually probably about two years afterwards that I was still sleeping with a gun under my pillow yeah. because I was so afraid of him. Yeah. And I think that's what they do. And I think that's something that we don't realize unless you've experienced it is the enormous fear that mm. you feel. Especially, you know... Those moments before you go to sleep, when your defenses are low, mm-hmm. so all of that just comes up and takes over mm. over that. So you say that you lived like that for about two years. And then I kind of, I agree with you, actually. I think victim, we mustn't be scared of it. I think that this idea of saying, no, I'm a survivor, is an attempt, a very real attempt, to make the negative positive from the very, very beginning. And it's not positive from the very beginning. You do feel like a victim initially for a period of time with all of those fears and the repercussions of that abuse and not being able to get on with your life. We, you do become a survivor. And then I think that we are talking about becoming a thriver. <laughs> so not just only surviving mm-hmm. and getting on with your life, but in a way that with new insights that you can bring to bear, you do in a more thrival rather than a survival way. Does this resonate with you and your journey? Absolutely. I think eventually we, we move through anything that's momentous in our lives, whether it be loss or grief or fear, whatever. Eventually you move through it. Sometimes. Well, it, you yes. did. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, it, it was a process. I'm not undermining the whole thing and I'm not, you know, sort of playing it down. Um, it certainly was a process. And I know, I mean, it took me 18 years to write the book. And by the time I started writing the book, I have to say that I was pretty much healed And I had to be because I had to be able to distance myself from the story. I had to be able to step back and be as objective as I could be about it. Um, So so it was a long process. Did you relive a part of it as you were writing it? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there were times when and and it was it was strange times. I remember writing about the neighbors breaking the door down to get me out and writing. And then I was safe. And, And as I wrote those words, I realized how unsafe I'd felt and how, you know, coming from a home of domestic violence as well, growing up in a home of domestic violence, safety in a home 
was not something that we really lived. I mean, you always felt unsafe in your home. You always felt unsafe when, 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 when night came because that was a time when things fell apart in the home. So it was when I wrote that sentence and then I had to go in and I had to process the concept of safety. And I think that's where the healing comes from is when you really sit down and you think these things through and you work through them. So that was one time. Another time was when I realized how close I came to death and how I couldn't say in the courtroom that I thought I was going to die. Mm. And as I wrote it, I mean, I couldn't mm. write for weeks after that. Mm. Mm. So do you think that the book served to, that you had to, you were writing down the words, you were describing the experiences, and those experiences were just got triggered again. So, and you say that it took 18 years to write it. Do you think that in writing it, it was therapeutic for you? It was, and... But as I say, I started the book having essentially been healed. And I'm always interested in people asking me that question because I get asked that question a lot. It's probably the question I get asked the most is, you know, did you find it healing? And I'm always fascinated as to why people ask that question. What do we know about telling a story? What do we know about that process that we think it would be healing? But it was, and I think it was because I really had to think about it. And I had to then put it behind me and actually say, you know what, it's over. And then I also came upon quite a few realizations. I mean, as a child, I couldn't understand why anybody, nobody ever helped us. You know, why? The police wouldn't help. The family wouldn't help them. Neighbors wouldn't help. And as I wrote the book, I realized that actually people are helpless very often, and they're really not able to help. And I found an enormous sense of peace getting that understanding. So on that level as well. Peace was, as opposed to as opposed anger. To, as opposed to feeling alone. Mm. Um, so it gave me... A different understanding mm. on many different levels. Mm. Um, so you, so that question really is, I think, I think the the reason for that is because we think that time is a great healer. It's something that people say to some extent it works, but when you've gone through such trauma like this, it's really more to do with what you resist persists, and if you haven't dealt with it properly, you say you were healed. Mm. But in writing the book, you had to stand in the fire again. I had to because I also wanted to take the reader on the journey with me. So unless I, I, in order to take someone with me, I had to go there myself. I had to go into the darkness. I had to go into the fear. I had to go into the anger. When I wrote about the court case, I got angry. Mm. I got so, so angry mm. at the process. And I knew I had to go there. Mm. Um, so that I could so share these the emotions emerged again and gave you a second chance. You went through healing. I'm sure that there was someone who was partnering you through it, a professional person and maybe no, other supportive people in your life. Well, it wasn't there. Okay. No, I had been seeing someone. And then when I started writing, I thought I have to do this on my own. I really had to go there. I didn't. I couldn't have someone I don't pick mean me during up in the between. Book. What I meant is in the healing process before you. Oh, yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. Mm. Yeah, therapy's okay. definitely been a part of it. I wanted to move on. I wanted to heal. And I knew that I couldn't do that on my own. So there are two aspects from this that I want to pick up on, which you've referred to, and which I think are really very, very important. You've referred a few times to, you know, w when you're in a household and when you're alone, and you're talking about your own childhood. This abuse in this way was a Cute and devastating and huge in itself, 
but it wasn't the first time that you'd witnessed abuse. No. And I think that in the play that was produced about your story, the juxtaposition was so brilliantly depicted of Tracy the child and what she went through and how that sort of mingled in a way or influenced the abuse that you went through as an adult and how the the past experiences came forward again in the thinking about it and in the doing it. You went through a lot as a child and as a result of that, I think you made yourself a promise that you were unable to keep. That's right. I, I said, I remember after one particular um, afternoon, it was a brutal beating in the home between my father, my father beating up my mother. And I remember saying that day that, that, that this will never, ever, ever happen to me. I will never be beaten up. And um, it was something that I carried with me. So I think that How when old were you? I was probably about nine years old. And um, I mean, I'd always known it was wrong. And, you know, it was just not the way other people live their lives with all this violence. And I think that that's what made me so alert to when I found myself in the same situation was that you know, I could see, I could see the parallels in the behavior. I could see, I could understand, you know, I could feel the fear. I knew what it was. You know, I had some understanding of it. And I think that's what made me so super alert to, to the whole thing and, and that I did walk away yes. and, and, and didn't you end up staying did. a year yeah. or two or whatever, trying to work through this relationship and giving him the benefit of the doubt. I didn't give him the benefit of the doubt. Mm. So yeah. I think because I'd made that promise to myself as a child, it stood by me mm-hmm. at that time. Mm-hmm. Would you say that because of that and because of what you'd experienced, you could decide with dignity how you would and would not be treated? And when you saw that being violated, that huge promise, the kind of promise that you make when you're a child, which is based not on intellect but on overriding emotion, mm-hmm. just comes back and said, no, not again. But you lived with it as a child where you felt stuck and that was at the, the beginning of when you felt alone and you thought okay where are the people around why am I still in this situation there are adults around I think that there were some attempts to alert people during that time to what was going on and no one showed up as a child or as an as adult? As a child. As a child. Um, yeah, I think, you know, it was a time... What did you used to witness sort of all regularly and on a daily basis? You spoke about the one time there was when a lot you of were abuse. nine. There was a lot of abuse in the home. Um, there was endless violence. Um, my, my father was an alcoholic, so there was a lot of, you know, drunkenness. We lived in a home of silence. You know, it wasn't a home that music was played in. It wasn't a home where you debated issues and spoke about things. It was a home of silence. You were very much, you know, not to be seen or heard. Did we you have any most. support? No, we lived on a we lived on a small holding. So so physically we were isolated as well. And we were very much on our own. I mean, you know, when there's alcohol abuse to this extent, it's not a place where you don't, your friends don't come and visit you. You don't, people don't come to your house. You don't have family lunches on a Sunday afternoon. It is a home. It's a place of isolation anyway. So you're talking about it as the home. I'm, to, I'm asking about you feeling so cut off and isolated. Was there anyone who you were talking to? What was the relationship like that you had with your brother, for example? Well, they were younger than me, so I felt that my job was um, to look <coughs> after them as the eldest. 
So that was very much the role I played. Which meant you were a kind of parentified child. Well, I was. And, and I think often in a situation like that, you know, everyone be, in, a, in a home of domestic violence, the person that becomes the most important is the mother. Is Everybody is looking to keep the mother safe. The mother's looking to keep herself safe. The children are looking to keep the mother safe. Because if I lose my mother, who's going to look after me? So I think as a, as a child and as the eldest, you often take on that role of looking after the parent. So that's huge responsibility. It's huge responsibility. And also prevents you from being a child. Well, yes, there's that as well. Yeah. 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 I mean, your childhood is taken away from you Absolutely. in a home of domestic violence. Absolutely. And I'm wondering if that was the beginning of you thinking, I mean, you spoke about before in quite a poignant way, of feeling so alone, even as an adult. It sort of re-emerged like that. And maybe I'm asking, was there some difficulty that you had until you've kind of, you say that you're still on a journey, but it's been... F- a pretty reclaiming of your life journey and I suppose in a, it's quite a successful journey because here you are and you've, you're talking about it in a way that assists other people which might have been your motivation for wanting to do it in the first place. To write the book. To write the book. Yeah. My motivation to write the book was really, it wasn't for personal healing, it wasn't for myself although when I got to the end of the book I realized I'd really actually mm. written it for myself but, but um, I wrote the book in outrage and protest. I wrote I wrote it to add to the conversation because what really spurred me on was I'd always sort of known I had a story to tell and perhaps I, you know, I wanted to tell it or should tell it. And I write the prologue of the book as well and I, I talk about this when Oscar murdered Reva. That was the impetus for me because when it all played out in the courtroom and we all were exposed to it, that was when I thought, and I was so outraged by what had happened in the courtroom and the way that the women, the female witnesses, had been discredited in the courtroom. And, and it took me back to my time in the courtroom. And I got so angry. And I thought, well, and then he was sentenced, and that was the most ridiculous sentence, and it was a slap in the face for all of us. And then when I thought, okay, now's the time to write it. So I really wrote it to give insight into what happens in a home of domestic violence as a child and then as a woman. Because I thought I was already seeing patterns of Reva pandering to Oscar's mood and temper. So it really resonated for me. And that's when I thought, okay, now I'm going to tell my story. Because I want people to understand what happens in domestic violence. Because I am an empowered woman and I couldn't believe it was happening to me. Mm. And that it did happen to me. So, you know, I think the very first thing is you actually can't believe it's happening to you and therefore it isn't happening to you mm-hmm. and that's how slowly but surely we get caught up in this whole mm-hmm. web of, of of power actually because mm-hmm. that's what it is it's mm-hmm. power of the victim of the abuser power over the victim. and control mm. absolutely you were primed that you had to cope on your own not only primed that you had to cope on your own but also that you were the nurturer and the caregiver that started in your family and often inappropriately. There was no one, from what you're saying, who was there for you. And I would imagine that when you wanted that, you needed a mother in name, but she wasn't really mothering of you. And you went through a lot of this alone. And I'm wondering if that's where it might have influenced you to say, you know, ah, it's going to be better in the morning. I don't really need to ask for help. I'll cope with this on my own. I'm a big girl, because you did speak about lack of support as if realizing, no, there's no support out there, 
And I'm not. I'm, I'm asking. I'm questioning you about that. How much of that was to do with not being able to say this is what's happening to me, and I need you, either as a child or as an adult. I don't feel that I didn't have support as an adult. I felt that I had quite a bit of support. I mean, once I got over the absolute disbelief of it actually happening to me and and the shame, I think that's what really keeps mm. us keeps us quiet is the shame. You're so ashamed. That you're being broken down and humiliated and beaten and hurt in your own home. Because mm-hmm. um, that's what is happening to me. It was my own home. <laughs> you know, you can't believe it. You've allowed somebody into your space and this is happening to you. What did so, the shame say to you? If the shame had a voice. I know one of the most profound things for me was when he was kicking me. I, I can never process the fact that somebody actually kicked me. That somebody thought I was worthless enough. That they could have me on the yeah. ground kicking me. And I think that's where the shame comes in because people make you feel as though you're worthless. Did you feel that? He made me feel like I was nothing. Mm. Um, and, and I think that's what they do. I think that's a very so the part real of the kind pattern. of part, that essence of shame is am I worthy? Am I worthless? Am I good enough? Am I, it goes on, am I clever enough? Am I beautiful enough? Am I this enough? I feel less than. And that's that kind of voice of shame which gets confirmed over and over again Mm. when someone kicks you around or pulls you by the hair or beats you up. One question, Tracy, you eventually, you had to, you went to the police and you entered the police station battered and bruised and bleeding. What was the kind of reception that you had? I actually tell the story in my book because it was, I mean, now I can laugh about it and I can step back and I can think, you know, that policeman, uh, I went, I can't, I don't know who he was, but he was a really nice guy. He recognized me as I walked in. And I mean, he just looked at me and he said to me, it's you, Tracy, going. And I'm like, I couldn't believe it. I was so, I mean, here I am standing there, my eyes swollen closed. I mean, I looked an absolute mess. And here is this policeman so happy to meet me. So even amid all of that, I I could see some of the humor in it at the time. But um, (laughs) it was so sweet, but it was not really appropriate. Yes, I was going to say wrong moment. (laughs) Wrong moment. Uh, and that actually was the start of really what was to transpire because it was to then go public. Um, I never for a moment foresaw that it was going to go public because someone had beat me up. My instinct was that this is wrong. I mean, as a child, I used to phone the police to try and get help. And as an adult, my first step was going to the police and laying charges. I mean, it, to me, it was just an automatic reaction. And I didn't foresee, you know, what was going to come afterwards, that it was going to be splashed all over the media, that my face would be all over newspapers, magazines, TV. And that was shameful because he was going to do whatever it took to stay out of jail and to stay out of trouble. So it didn't matter what he did to destroy me in the process. And I had to look people in the face. I had to face the next day. And the most terrible things were said about me. And I had to cope with it. And I had to cope with it publicly. Terrible things were said about you. Well, they tried to destroy me as a person, as a, they tried to destroy my career, they tried to shame me as a mother, uh, they did, they took on, they did whatever they could. Who's the they? The, the defense team. Okay. It didn't matter so what they said or how they said it. Their objective was <laughs> so success. So you had to defend your own integrity 
and the truth as well as talk about what actually happened in the time. It was deeper than just, not just, it was deeper than the incident. It was really yeah. about personal attack. It, it was. It, it was on so many levels. Mm. And then, of course, it would be, you know, in the newspaper the next day after the court case. Um, so that was that was very difficult at the time. Mm. Can we just talk for a minute or two about the journey of thrival? Yes. And where you are. And how that, how you were able to get onto that, and the ups and the downs of that journey, because it's not, you know, you might think that that's it is possible. I believe it's possible for everyone, but it doesn't always happen with everyone. After something like that, you know, sometimes people just do retreat, and you yeah. t- you talk about post traumatic stress a lot instead of what we're talking about now, which is post traumatic growth. Oh, growth, growth is, is wonderful. But I think it has to do with resilience. And I think even as a child, I was resilient. You know, I knew it was wrong. I knew what was going on in our home was not right. So I never for a minute accepted it on that level. And I think I was never going to accept it as a woman. But I think it is, a, is an inbuilt resilience. And I was always ultimately going to thrive, as oh. you say. It was just not an option for me. Any other choice. There was no other choice. And the journey of getting there from where you were to now, what helped? I I think very often I faced each day just pretending that it wasn't me, that it hadn't happened to me. And I suppose denial, really. Denial until I I had the emotional strength to actually deal with it. Right. So you needed to get that kind of strength and then face it and then get over it. How are you now and what are you involved with? Well, Where's your it's, life? It's been an interesting <laughs> journey. So the book has taken up a lot of time. I mean, the book came out just over a year ago and that has been absolutely, yeah, it's been a brilliant year. I think response. that I saw somewhere that it's on the Alan Payton. It is. It is. It's on the fantastic. long list. So that's lovely. That's exciting. Congratulations. Thank you. That's exciting. And then, of course, it was made into a play by um, Lissetti Job and written by Natasha Sutherland. You saw it. And that was um I mean, that was quite something. That was, that was amazing. And I When had to, you saw your life played out like that, I had to how was that it wasn't for you? Me. I had to, again, I had to just step back and just sort of think, okay, it's not me. And I just try to be as objective as possible about the play itself. And Could you ever say it was me, but it's not me now? That is not who I am now. That was me and was my life. And I'm so pleased. I don't think that it I'm was me. It. I don't know. When you say it was me, it's as though I've changed as a person. I don't think I've fundamentally changed as a person. I still, I'm still the same person. I still have that resilience. I'm stronger. still happy. Um, I don't know if I'm stronger. You know, I'm not sure what that means. I mean, what do, does adversity make you stronger? I, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it just makes you a little bit tougher. And that's not something I liked because when I, when I said earlier on that he took away my essence, was he took away my gentleness. You know, he took away my... My sense of life being free and, and easier. So I think for many years joy after that. after he beat me up, um, I, I was very I was very protective of my space, very protective of myself, vigilant. I'm still hyper vigilant. I don't think I'll be anything but that. I think as South Africans be hyper vigilant. But he made he made me become that, and that's the part I didn't like. And now but, do you have that much more freedom? I think I do. I have. I, I. I do have a greater sense of peace having worked through the book and fun, having great fun. 
Yeah, life, life, life a little bit good. more abandonment. No, life life is wonderful. Life is good, and I and I've always celebrated life. I'm just that type of person. Mm. Tracy, it's a fascinating story, and I'm sure that it's been resonating in so many ways with you who are listening to this. It is a story of thrival much more than survival. We applaud you for that. Thank you. Because it isn't everybody's story, but it also shows you about the power of resilience and possibility turning into probability, turning into manifesting as thrival. So uh, we appreciate you offering this, not only this podcast, but your book and the play to try and highlight some of these dynamics through your story and thereby assist so many people who haven't come out and who are dealing with this silently. And I think that it is of great assistance to them. Thank so you, thank because you I think we all, we all deserve our best life. And I think if, if somebody is is destroying you and beating you and hurting you, then that's not where you should be. And I think your safety is a priority and you need to you need to get out. But thank okay. you, Dorian. Thank sure. you for having me on your show. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. And this is what the show is about. It really is about living your best life. Chat to you soon. I'm Dorian Wheel. Thanks for listening to Thrive with Dr. D, a Jackpot podcast.